1. We're going to be looking at this genealogy, the first 17 verses. And in verse 1, Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your providence we're able to celebrate the Advent season, the Advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, our Lord, our Mediator, our Prophet, our Priest, our King, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Son of David, Son of Abraham. Father, we pray today that as we make our way through this genealogy, you would incite, you would fuel a greater love for Jesus for every person here. That's my goal for this sermon. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Just months before undertaking the last journey of his life, and that as a missionary to a remote island in the Indian Ocean. John Chow, age 26, was blindfolded and dropped on a dirt road in a remote part of Kansas. After a long walk, he, he came to this mock village in the woods inhabited by missionaries who were dressed in these strange, these odd thrift store clothes, pretending not to understand the thing that he was saying. What he was to do was to preach the gospel to them, and they were to be hostile towards him, act aggressive towards him. They even brandished fake spears, and they spoke gibberish. It was part of, a, of a, an intense three-week-long missionary boot camp, which was the culmination of years of preparation for Chow, uh, where he had been studying languages and even to be an EMT. He also forewent a, uh, any kind of full-time job so he could travel the world and toughen himself up to use his language. He did it all with the single-minded goal of evangelizing the people of North Sentinel Island. It's a remote place of hunters and gatherers who have shown great hostility to any outsiders who have tried to come into their world in the past. Now, although Chow knew this, although he knew it would be dangerous, it became his obsession. It had been his obsession ever since he was in high school, and he was introduced to these people through the Joshua Project, a wonderful website you can visit there. And he had learned that these people perhaps may be the most isolated people in the world. And so much of what he did from there on, the rest of his life, was with the intention of evangelizing these people. And in mid-November, he believed that he was ready and so through the, a contact, a local evangelical, um, he was introduced to five fishermen 
who would take him by boat to this secluded island. And they set out the night of November the 14th, and they arrived the morning of November the 15th. And because those fishermen would not get within a half a mile of the island, he had to, to make this kind of collapsible, uh, collapsible kayak and then go the rest of the way. When he got to the island, he, he was encountered by a few of the natives, and he said to them, my name is John, I love you, and Jesus loves you. Of course, they didn't understand what he was saying, he didn't understand what they were saying. In fact, no one knows their language, there's not a, a person in the world that knows their language. Anthropologists have been stumped by their language for, for many years. And so they raised their bows at him, and he, he recognized that he needed to withdraw, and so he went back to the fishermen about a half mile out. A few hours later, he approached them again. This time, he had gifts like scissors and safety pins. At this point, a young fellow shot an arrow at him, and it hit his waterproof Bible. Well, he withdrew again and went back out to the fisherman. Well, the next morning, he swam to the shore and then the fishermen went out to, to see to fish. The next day, they went to check on him. And from a distance, they saw the, one of the natives pulling Chow with a rope. He had been killed. Now, why would a young man give his life away when he had so much of his life yet? To live? Why would he give his life away to a people who obviously wanted nothing to do with him? You can say a lot about his methods, we could critique his methods, but you can't say anything about his courage and his, his commitments. What were those commitments? What did he understand that he was willing to forego his life, to, to lay down his life so that these people might hear? The message he wanted to communicate is simply this. He recognized the principle of Emmanuel, the promise of Emmanuel. The promise is this, God with us. And Chow recognized that that promise is bad news for those who do not have a mediator. The promise of the presence of God is bad news to those who do not have a mediator to this God. Or better said, who do not have the mediator to this God. And that's why the Gospel of Matthew ends with the Great Commission. It teaches us there's only one Gospel. The Great Commission is this. Jesus has satisfied divine justice by his cross, by his fulfilling all righteousness. Then he was raised bodily from the grave. And then he gives this last commission in light of his victory. He says, all authority has been given to me as the exalted God-man. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I have commanded you to do. And lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. 
That great commission tells us there's only one gospel. It's also why Matthew begins with a genealogy, which communicates, like the great commission, there's only one savior. There's only one king. Now, every genealogy at face value is like Rudolph's nose. At face value, there appears to be no use for it. But upon deeper examination, you find that it's quite profitable. Indeed, at first glance, when you read these genealogies, it's, it's just a list of names here, starting with Abraham, then proceeding on to David, and then culminating with Jesus. In between are names that we are sometimes familiar with. Uh, at other times, these are names that we perhaps are not familiar with. Uh, it's kind of like the man who was asked to write a a review of the phone book. His summary was, great cast of characters, weak plot. But Matthew would have us see it's actually the plot of the ages. And we see the prologue of this plot in chapter 1, verse 1. Look with me in verse 1. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Matthew's gospel is primarily directed at a Jewish audience who would have been well-versed in the Old Testament. And they would have not missed that opening line where he says, the book of the genealogy. Because that very phrase in the exact wording is found two times in the Old Testament. Matthew clearly is signaling that. And in both places, it's found in the first book of their Torah, their law. The first place is in Genesis 2, verse 4, where Moses writes, these are the generations, same exact phrase, same exact phrase, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Here Moses is saying, this is, these are the generations of the creation that God created as good. But then we sinned, didn't we? We sinned in Adam. Curse came over creation. In the midst of that came a promise that a seed from the woman, which I believe is a veiled reference Veiled prophecy to a, a virgin conception because women don't have seeds. But a seed will come from the woman who will crush the seed, the serpent. And so what we have here is this promise. And then that phrase is found one more time. Genesis chapter 5, look with me. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. What we see here is that God has promised to restore what was lost in the fall when he created everything good through the line of of their son named Seth, 
whose name means appointed one. So Matthew, in beginning his gospel with that phrase, the book of the genealogy, he is signaling that that day is here in this person, Jesus Christ. He is the new beginning. That was initiated in Seth. And we, we can see that Seth uh, is the beginning of this promise. And then you, you go on to people like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and so forth and so on. And so this is the book of the new creation, the new beginning. So you could say Matthew is the book of the new Genesis. Matthew is the New Testament's version of Genesis wrought by Jesus. Matthew is going to give us a record of the new age that is ushered in, launched by the coming, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus that will find its ultimate fulfillment in Revelation 21 and 22, when death will be no more. The curse will be reversed. There will be no more crying, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more mourning. The old things will have passed away. Indeed, in Christ, the Lord is making all things new. And as Matthew introduces the one who will bring about this new beginning, he immediately reveals some names and titles that will reveal who he is and what he will do to bring about this new age. The first we see is his name, Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the Greek name for the Hebrew name Joshua. Of course, we know Joshua's name means the Lord is salvation. The Lord saves. And it signals back or points us back to one who was named Joshua, who led God's people into their inheritance, into the land by defeating their enemies. And of course, that's not just imposing on the text. The writer of Hebrews makes that a central argument of his letter. He says in Hebrews 4 that this Joshua could not bring in the ultimate rest. Hebrews 4, he says, God would not have spoken of another day later on if this Joshua could have led God's people into their rest. A greater Joshua had to come. And this Jesus offers that latter-day rest by saving his people from the very things that cause them to labor and be heavy laden. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm the greater Joshua. Matthew signals that here. Secondly, we see he is the Christ, the son of David. Nine times in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is designated the son of David. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, we understand from our prophecies and the text that was cited this morning by Joshua that David's son would have an everlasting kingdom and throne. It would be the son of David who would come and have an everlasting rule 
and reign and kingdom. 2 Samuel 7, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, God said to David concerning his son, which would be his far-off son, his far-off grandson. Indeed, for unto us a child is given, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, the government of God. He will express the rule, the government of God on his shoulders, in his person. And his, shall, his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And to him there shall be no end. And he shall sit on David's throne and he will uphold justice and righteousness. And it says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He is the hope of the world. The promise comes through David. The second reason this language is imported is more existential. The people expected the son of David to heal the broken things. Let me give you just a couple of texts from Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us. Son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 15, 22, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. What is Matthew doing there? He's signaling the Gentiles see something that not even the Jews see. The hope of the world is through the son of David. Matthew 20, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They tried to hush in them, hush them down, and they just got louder and louder. Have mercy on us, son of David. And so there's an interesting theme here um, that the outsiders, that is the Gentiles, are appealing to the son of David as the mediator of God's mercy, as the hope for their brokenness, and they are thereby healed. Indeed, Matthew, he, he stresses this ministry to the Gentiles in his gospel, which implies that Jesus is the promised fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Through your seed, all the nations, not just the, the ethnic Israelites, all the nations will be blessed. And David is a partial fulfillment of that. The Davidic covenant being the partial fulfillment and the means of fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham. That brings us to the third part of this verse. He is the son of Abraham. Son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the one through whom God promised blessing to the nations. Who were the nations? Well, in Genesis 11, you have the Tower of Babel, and all the nations have converged to build this tower to make a name for themselves. And God judges the nations. He disperses the nations in judgment. And then immediately, after that narrative, we have the calling of Abraham, and God says, I will not lead them in judgment. 
And he calls Abraham and he says, through your seed, through your offspring, I will bless these nations that I have brought judgment upon. And so we see here that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He will be the seed. He will be the offspring. Paul picks that up in Galatians 3.16. He says, the promise made to Abraham of the seed does not refer to many, but refers to one. Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and says, and if you are Christ, that is, you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And that's why this genealogy kicks off with Abraham. Notice, it's a, it's a narrative. It's a story. It's not just a compilation of, of ideas and, and pontifications on religion. This is a grand story. That finds its fulfillment in one person. And that's why this genealogy begins with Abraham. Notice in the second part of verse 2. Where we see, yes, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. He's also the father of Ishmael. Ishmael's not mentioned here because... Matthew is laying out the, the promised line, okay, that began with Seth, remember, in Genesis chapter 5. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. Yeah, he had a son named Esau as well. But again, this is the promised line. And Jacob, the father of Judah. Now, if I was writing this, I probably would have mentioned Joseph. He seemed to be the best of all the, the sons. It's through Judah that the Messiah will come. We learned that in Genesis 49. When Jacob scandalously and remarkably blesses Judah and says, Through you will come the scepter of the nations. The obedience of the nations. And that scepter will not depart until you have that obedience. Quite remarkable. And his brothers, notice. And Judah, the father of Perez, that came out through a scandalous encounter we'll talk about, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, we'll come back to Tamar, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Again, we'll come back to her. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And so, this genealogy so far has traced 14 generations from Abraham to David. He's not giving you every name. This is an accurate genealogy. It's not a comprehensive genealogy. And there's going to be 14 generations that he gives from David to the exile. All right? And then 14 generations from the exile to the coming of Jesus. And there's a reason for this, and it's theological. So there are three sections of this genealogy, and they all pivot on David. All right? And the exile to Babylon. David represents the high point of Israel's history. 
just a very short period of time, but he represents the high point. And the exile, where they are cast out of their garden, if you will, the promised land, represents the low point. That occurred in three stages, 605, 606 B.C., 597 B.C., and in 586 B.C., where the temple is destroyed. There is no temple, and there is no more a Davidic throne. Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, will bring about a new exodus. That's what Matthew is signaling. It will be a much more glorious exodus than anything that we see in the Old Testament, whether it's an exodus from Egypt or an exodus from Babylon. This will be an exodus not just from political powers. It will be an exodus from the greatest power, which is the power of sin and the penalty of sin. This is exactly the language that Paul picks up. In Colossians 1, where it says, he has delivered us. That is, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption. He is the Passover lamb through his blood. And that's why it is critical that Matthew here establish that Jesus descended from the line of David. That brings us to the next point. Jesus the son of David. Yes the son of Abraham. But also the son of David. Notice in the second part of verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon. By the wife of Uriah. We'll come back to that language. Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Matthew names 15 kings here. There were actually 20 kings in Judah's history. One dynasty, 20 kings. And interestingly enough, the northern kingdom, which was rogue from the beginning, they never had a godly king. The the northern kingdom had 20 kings as well, but all of them were faithless. Well, Matthew names 15. His intent is not to give us a comprehensive list, but it's an accurate list. And, and so the list extends from David to Jeconiah. And about half of these kings that he lists were men of faith. Some were believers, though, who had committed heinous sins. For instance, Jehoshaphat entered into alliances with evil kings, pagan and wicked kings. Second Chronicles 20. Hezekiah pridefully revealed the treasures of Israel to their enemies, and then later the enemies ransacked them. We know that from 2 Kings 20. After years and years of a successful reign, Uzziah, 
he uh, usurped the role of a priest, and he died of leprosy. We learned that from 2 Chronicles 26. Uzziah was a great king, though. He just didn't finish well. That's a testimony to us all. In fact, he was so great that Isaiah says that it was the year Uzziah died that God called him to the ministry because that was such a monumental year for Israel, for Judah. They were grieving the loss of this man who had reigned from 800 B.C. to 740 B.C. Sixty years Uzziah reigned, but he didn't finish well. In fact, Chronicle says he was marvelously helped until he became strong. You can become too strong. You can become too self-sufficient. Well, half the kings here are men of faith, and half the kings were utterly wicked. Isn't that interesting? In Jesus' genealogy, you think your family is dysfunctional. Um, Ahaz, he mentions Ahaz here. He worshipped the gods of the Assyrians. He also practiced human sacrifice. He actually killed one of his sons and laid him up on the altar to satisfy the gods. He stripped the gold and silver from the temple and gave them to the kings surrounding him to appease them. He defiled the Lord's altar and installed a pagan altar instead, 2 Kings 16. Then men like Rehoboam and Jeconiah were almost as evil as Ahaz. They're mentioned here. And then Manasseh was even worse. How can you be worse than Ahaz? Well, the scripture tells us that Manasseh was. Uh, 2 Kings 21.9 says he led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed. He led Israel to be more wicked than the wicked nations that God had destroyed surrounding Israel. He promoted the worship of idols. He he murdered innocent people, 2 Kings 21. And because of these sins, because of the king's sins, the one representing the many, again, under the old covenant, when the king was faithful, the people was deemed faithful. When the king was unfaithful, the people were deemed unfaithful. What do you think the scripture is preparing us for? Preparing us for one who will come as our representative. One who will come and whose obedience will be imputed to us. Well, because of these kings' unfaithfulness and apostasy, the exile was their fate. They were cast out of the garden, cast out of the land like Adam. They were cast from the presence of God. That brings us to verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, the signet ring, as you can see in Haggai 2. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abaud. And Abaud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer. You better make sure you pronounce these correctly. And Eliezer, the father of Matin, and Matin, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. 
Isn't that beautiful? 39 times in verses 2 to 16, we see the active verb was the father of. Maybe your translation reads begot. 39 times with one exception. We'll speak more about this next time. But in verse 16, there's an abrupt abrupt shift to the passive was born. And so, so so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. But in verse 16, it changes to the passive. Jesus was born who is called Christ. What do you think that implies? Divine activity. This will be a virgin conception. We'll, again, look at this next week. But why is this text so important to us? We know it is. All scripture is profitable. And is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Well, the first question we have to, is, uh, to ask is why was it first given to us? Why? What is the most important reason this text was given to us? And the answer is this. It establishes that Jesus is a part of of the royal family of David. This is the central purpose. The hope of the world would come through Abraham and then through his far-off grandson, David. Abraham through Judah, through David. We'll learn in 1 Samuel that that's one of the real evidences that Saul was not God's king because he came from the tribe of Benjamin. Not the tribe of Judah. And so it's established at the very beginning by way of adoption. Joseph's uh, being the father, the human father, but by adoption. That Jesus is the, from the tribe of David. In fact, that became so important that Paul says that is the gospel. He says in Second. Timothy 2, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. Isn't that interesting? That he would say, descended from David is a part of his gospel message. Because Paul recognizes that Matthew and Luke and John and Mark don't just come out of thin air. They're a part of a grand meta story, mega story. It finds its hope, its culmination in this person, Jesus Christ, from the tribe of David. Secondly, this genealogy reminds us that we're not the center of things, the center of history. Many of our personal problems and marital problems stem from the fact that we we think we're the center of things, that we're the most important things. This past week, George H.W. Bush died and he was buried. And I want you to think about this. As powerful a man as he was, for the rest of eternity, the fact that he was the 41st president of the United States will be irrelevant to him. It will be irrelevant. That will not be his status. He likely attained a kind of status that you nor I will ever attain. If you read his biography, it's astounding. The opportunities that were afforded him, the doors that were opened to him. But in the eschaton, in the afterlife, he will not be 41. 
the question will, what did you do with the Son of God? That will be all that matters for George H.W. Bush. Generations go, they come and they go. Empires come and they go. Presidents come and they go. Kings, dictators, entertainers, musicians, scholars, they come and they go. But at the center of it all stands one person, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the only one who will be standing in the end. And the implication for us is very clear. We have one life. James says that life is like a mist, a vapor that appears for a moment and then it disappears. That's just sobering. We have this one vapor life. And the implication is that we, as we see this Christ who is the son of Abraham and the promise made to Abraham is that through him all the blessings would come, we should submit our lives underneath his rule. He's the son of David, which means the rule of God is expressed through this man. He's the son of Abraham, which means the blessing of God will be expressed through this man. It would be the height of insanity not to submit every area of our lives from our personal walks to our marriages to our parenting to the way we do life with our neighbors, our coworkers, and our private lives underneath his rule. Because any area of our life that's not underneath his rule will not be sanctioned by God. It will not be blessed by God. He is the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then finally, this genealogy is a chronicle of the grace of God. There are many moral failures on the resume of this list. We've already seen a bit of that. But just consider four of the five women mentioned. The first one was Tamar. Tamar was a Gentile. Jesus was not a pure blood. He had Gentile blood. Tamar, we read about in Genesis 38. Without going into detail, we did look at it on a Sunday night many moons ago. Judah had an affair unknowingly with his daughter-in-law who was dressed like a prostitute. And out of that came Perez. But people like Judah and Tamar being included in the line of Christ sends a strong message about the pure grace of God. Secondly, how about Rahab, a Gentile? We read about her in Joshua 6. She was a harlot and a Canaanite. And then there's Ruth. A Moabitess. Do you know the origin of the Moabites? Genesis 19. Lot had an affair with his daughter. Out of that came the Moabites. Ruth was a Gentile. And then notice the wife of Uriah, verse 6. Her name's not given. It's an interesting way to refer to Solomon's mother. 
Bathsheba. It hints that Solomon's mother, being married to a Hittite, was also a Gentile. Do you get that? Four of the five women mentioned here were Gentiles. People like us. And three of these women were known as prostitutes or adulterers. Again, if your, if your family line, your family tree is dysfunctional, be of good cheer. So is the Messiah's. In fact, note who's missing in this genealogy. Not because Matthew's made a mistake. He didn't make a mistake. He's writing to self-righteous Jews or people who struggle with self-righteousness. The, patri- the matriarchs are missing. Sarah's not mentioned. Rebecca's not mentioned. Rachel isn't mentioned. He's making a statement by that. Jesus' family includes a hodgepodge of saints and sinners. It's intended to show us that even the best of the human race needs a savior. And the worst of the human race isn't beyond salvation. So that message in itself hits every person in here. Because some people tend to think more like Pharisees. They they tend to think like the elder brother in Luke 15, that they are, relatively speaking, better than most people, you need a Savior. Because I was thinking about this just yesterday. I was driving. I was noticing these trees. Some of them are very tall. Some of these were very short trees right next to the, to the interstate. And then I saw a plane flying over. And I thought, from the perspective of that plane, those Tall trees don't look any superior to the short trees. They all look the same size. No matter how righteous you may think you are, before an infinitely holy God, you are more like these defiled sinners than you are the Messiah. And so this genealogy teaches us that the best of us need a Savior The worst of us are not beyond salvation. Isn't that good news? The genealogy of Jesus Christ signals the dawn of redeeming grace. Grace is not amnesty. Grace is costly. Grace is someone giving you a gift at their personal expense. God absorbing the debt that you owe him. So that he can forgive you. That's what Jesus did as the Messiah. He came to save us from our sins as we'll see more next week. Grace to cover the repentance sin. To cover the repentance guilt and condemnation. No matter what you have done or what you are doing. Grace upon grace. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Grace... For your marriages. Grace for your parenting. Grace for the peer pressure that you experience in school. Grace for the workplace difficulties. Grace for those of you that are right now grieving 
so deeply. Grace for those who are in perpetual physical pain. The son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus the Christ, has come to a world, as we sang, in sin, in error, pining. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Indeed, he was born that man no more may die, born to raise the son of earth, born to give them second birth. The genealogy of Jesus teaches us that he is the Christ by heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That's what the genealogy of Jesus teaches us. And John Chow recognized that. Again, you can critique his methods. They're subject to critique. But John Chow recognized these realities. And he gave his life so that others could come to recognize those realities as well. The question is, do you? If I were to ask your spouse, do you recognize those realities? doesn't matter what you, the face you put on here. Who you are is the face you put on before the person you're closest to. Would your spouse say, he, she recognizes these realities. He, she lives under the rule of Christ because Christ is the son of Abraham. Christ is the son of David. Would your children say that about you? My dad, my mother, recognizes three realities. Could your neighbor say that? Could your coworkers? Could the fly on the wall when no one's watching? This is a text for us. We are being encountered by this inscripturated word with the incarnate word. The son of God, the son of man, son of Abraham, son of David. Jesus the Christ. And we must respond. Let's pray.